One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, welcome to the history of the heavyweight championship of the world, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of 10. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sport's history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I start in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1967. The United States Army versus Cassius Marcellus Clay was always going to be the must-see fight of 1967. A one-sided legal mismatch. It happened in April in Houston with very few witnesses and 20 people outside marching and holding placards supporting the champion. However, in the same city in February, in front of 37,321 punters indoors at the fabulous glass temple of sport, the Astrodome, there was a heavyweight title fight and, by the way, a proper fight. Muhammad Ali was defending his championship, the real one, the one that had been in the hands of the best heavyweight fighters in the world since John L. Sullivan's savage days, the same title Jack Dempsey adored, Joe Louis worshipped and Rocky Marciano slept with. It didn't have to be a belt or a cup or a trophy of any sort. Being the heavyweight champion of the world was just that. You never needed any type of tin pot bauble to remind you. And Big Ernie Terrell was defending the newly created and increasingly undermined WBA version, a title awarded by self-important men with interests and, to this day, tricky agendas. That is often a polite way of saying men with few morals. Terrell could fight. He was not great on the eye, but he was a good fighter and had beaten quality men. Ali had a lot on his mind. Heavyweight champion Cassius Clay goes through the final stages of training for the defence of his title against Ernie Terrell. Experts predict that Terrell will prove to be the toughest opponent for Cassius so far. Clay's draft board says he could be drafted in February. Two appeals for deferment have already been turned down. Gaseous Cassius rattles off a bit of doggerel verse for the challenger, Terrell. He's gone around claiming to be the real heavyweight champ. But after I'm finished, he'll just be a friend. Now, I'm not saying this just to be funny, but I'm fighting Ernie because he needs the money. Ernie's answer will come in the ring at the Houston Astrodome. Ali dubbed Terrell the octopus and Terrell dubbed Ali Clay. 30 years later and during a lull in a fight week in Las Vegas, Terrell told me what happened. I just called him Clay at the meeting. It was not intentional. I'd known him for a long time and that's what I called him. It was not planned, not part of a strategy. Ali disagreed. Terrell and Ali had sparred together in Miami shared hotel rooms and spent a lot of time in one of the two black-only hotels in that city, talking about girls, religion and, well, girls. Terrell had even stayed in Ali's home back in Louisville. They had been friends. Now they were rivals and it was nasty, nasty very quickly. In early February, they fought. 
George Whiting of the London Evening Standard called it the fight of the century. George was not bothered by the growing hate, the mistrust, the claims and counterclaims, the screams of treachery and howls about Ali being a draft dodger. All George wanted the night before the first bell was a fight. None of us will give a damn about his colour or his creed. Tomorrow he can be Muhammad Ali, the Muslim who refused to carry military arms. Tonight he's Cassius Clay, fighting to preserve rich heritage. It was a fight that mattered. Ernie Terrell concentrates on training for his upcoming heavyweight bout with champion Cassius Clay. Terrell won a skirmish with the fight's promoters after he threatened to walk out in an argument about top billing. Posters showing his name smaller than Clay's were redone. The Chicago heavyweight is rated as the top contender for Clay's title. Most experts predict it will be the champ's toughest fight since he won the crown. Terrell's only comment, quote, I'm going to shut Clay's big lip. The fight stopped being competitive after a couple of rounds. Ali was dominant and sadistic and brilliant. Terrell was mercilessly beaten until the final bell. He suffered pain upon pain. His right eye closed after Ali raked it across the ropes. He was thumbed in the left eye. Ali kept asking Terrell the same question. What's my name? He never got the answer he wanted. At the start of the 13th round, with Terrell battered and teetering on collapse, Ali looked at him with hate and spat at Terrell's feet. Contempt, disgust or pity makes no difference. That act will remain a blemish on Ali's legacy. No amount of conjuring can make that moment vanish. No amount of humour or humanity can take away that act. The eyewitnesses marvelled at the barbarity. Ali was so good, magnificent in all of his evil ways, and even better at the boxing. He was, that night in the Astrodome, unbeatable. He was 25 years old, 15 stone 2 pounds, and not a heavyweight in history before or after could have lived with him that night. The fallout was not pleasant. The press hated it. The high-profile American columnist, Jimmy Cannon, continued his spiteful campaign. It was a bad fight, nasty with the evil of religious fanaticism. It wasn't an athletic contest. It was a kind of lynching. It left, so a lot of the boxing writers said, a lot to be desired. Ali was disappointed in his old friend's performance. Terrell was surprised by how dirty his old friend was. In their twilight years, the ravages of the ring diminishing each of them a bit more every day, they were friends, two gentle souls, survivors of a most horrid time. About six weeks later, Ali was defending his title again. It was his ninth defence. The challenger was Korean war hero and one of the 60s most overlooked fighters, Zora Foley. The venue was Madison Square Garden. It was March of 1967. Ali already had his orders at that time to report for army induction. That was his real problem. Foley was 33. It was his 86th fight. And he was finished as a real danger, a real threat as a contender. He deserved his crack at the heavyweight championship. Sadly, it was seven or so years too late. Ali stopped Foley in round seven. Many said it was a merciful act. He never prolonged the suffering. Foley was full of praise after the fight and considered him a great, not what people wanted to hear at the time. He had, incidentally, called Ali, Ali. After the fight, Foley said Louis wouldn't have a chance. He was too slow. Marciano couldn't get to him and would never get away from Ali's jab. 
Foley, like too many great heavyweights from the 60s, died too young. In 1972, he was fatally injured in a swimming pool incident. He was just 41. The death remains a mystery, suspicious to this day. Before the Foley fight, there was a chance meeting in a New York gym. Joe Frazier showed up to watch Ali train. They were polite. They eyed each other. Frazier insisted that it was good-natured kidding. There was certainly tension in the gym. Frazier was not eligible for the draft at that stage because he was married with children. He insisted that had he been single, he would have volunteered. He had tried to enlist when he was a boy of 14. There was a plan for Ali to have one more defence in Tokyo in May against Oscar Bonavina. That wild idea was scrapped when Ali was forbidden from travelling. Ali had his April showdown booked with the American military. It was never going to be a fair fight. Ali was ready for the chaos. Man, boxing is like child's play compared to this fight. Ali went to Houston expecting to be sent to prison. At one point in Houston, he asked Angelo Dundee if he would lose weight or gain weight in prison. Dundee said they're not too strong on road work. Ali had warned people that he was moving from the sports pages to the news pages. He was, as Hugh McElvenny of The Observer noted, turning into a fatalist. He knew the boxing days were gone. Ali went in at 8am on April 28th, 1967. He was one of 26 men called for induction at the US Armed Forces Examining and Entrance Station in Houston. An induction officer explained to the men that when their names are called, they should step across the line. The step will constitute your induction into the armed forces. The names were called. The men stepped across the line. 25 men stepped. Cassius Marcellus Clay refused. He was led to a room and told what could happen. A five-year prison sentence and a fine of $5,000 or more. He was led out and given another chance to step forward. He refused. A statement was immediately released. Ladies and gentlemen, Cassius Clay has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. It was hard news. There was a frenzy. It was expected, but now it was suddenly fact. It was the number one news item everywhere on the planet. Ali then went to an adjacent room and met the press. It was all remarkably civilised. His critics doubted his heart, and his sincerity. Hell, I've had to give up my title and all their millions. I'm about to go to jail and they ask me if I'm sincere. I'm either sincere or I'm crazy. Ten days later, he was indicted by a federal grand jury in Houston, photographed and fingerprinted. He was released on a $5,000 bail. His passport was gone. His trial was set for June, back in Houston. In June, he was sentenced to five years in prison and fined 10 grand. He appealed. His exile had started. His ring career was over for the moment. His license to fight suspended in America, but he was not in prison. But that's not the same as being a free man. Because heavyweight champion Cassius Clay at a federal court in Houston is found guilty of violating the U.S. selective service laws by refusing to be inducted. He is sentenced to five years in prison and fined $10,000 the maximum penalty for the offense, which is a felony. The sentence was appealed by Clay's lawyers. Clay contended his status as a black Muslim minister made him exempt from the draft. Released on bail, he faces a possible 18-month wait for an appeal decision. 
So with Ali off the heavyweight map and the WBA champion Big Ernie Terrell beaten, there was a huge void to be filled. There was, from April 1967, no heavyweight champion of the world. The WBA announced that they would hold an elimination tournament to find the next heavyweight champion of the world. They named eight fighters, Floyd Patterson, Jimmy Ellis, Fad Spencer, Oscar Bonavina, Ernie Terrell, Carl Mildenberger, Jerry Quarry and Joe Frazier. That's a good list. Ali even approved, believing that after the tournament there would finally be a legitimate boxer for him to beat when his exile ended. He even wondered if he would have been forced to take a break because there was simply nobody left for him to beat. The WBA tournament looked like a decent alternative to having no champion. However, Frazier was withdrawn and replaced by Leotis Martin, Sonny Liston was still in his own fight in exile. It was a confusing time, but the WBA tournament was relentless, with all eight boxers in action in seven fights in just a six-month period. It would take modern promoters longer to organise the ring-walk music for eight contenders, their entourages, management team and their PR flunkies. Quarry, a kid that looked like a surfer from California, beat Patterson on points in a close fight in October. Spencer beat Terrell on points in June. Bonavina went to Germany and beat Mildenberger on points in September. Mildenberger was dropped four times. Ellis stopped Martin in nine rounds in Houston in August. Then in December, at the Freedom Hall in Louisville, Ellis, who for years had been Ali's sparring partner, beat Bonavina on points over 12 rounds. Ellis dropped Bonavina twice in that fight. The event would continue in 1968, with Spencer, Quarry and Ellis all chasing the WBA's blessing and sanction. There would be a new champion in early 1968. It's hard to criticise this tournament. It was not the WBA's fault Ali had lost his licence to fight. Meanwhile, Frazier had six wins in 1967. Unbeaten heavyweight contender Joe Frazier in the dark trunks goes against Marion Connor of Canton, Ohio in third round action. A left hook staggers Connor while Frazier continues to stalk his man, inflicting punishment to both body and head. Frazier, ranked number one, outweighs his opponent by 30 pounds. Another left hook puts Connor on the ropes, and the former New England heavyweight champ is in big trouble. The 210-pound Philadelphian is in complete charge now, battering his lighter opponent from one corner of the ring to another. Frazier has a record of 18 straight wins with 16 knockouts. Among his victims, Canada's George Chavallo. A tremendous left hook sends Connor to the canvas, and it looks like the beginning of the end. Even the ref's upset. The bout is stopped, and Frazier wins by a TKO, making him the top candidate to inherit the heavyweight crown of Cassius Clay, who lost his title to his draft board. He finished the year 19-0 after the Connor knockout. In July, at Madison Square Garden, Frazier had stopped George Chevallo in four rounds. It was the first time Chevallo had been stopped, and plenty had tried. Chevallo had made Ali work for 15 rounds in their heavyweight championship fight in 1966. The Frazier win was a savage mauling, a real warning to every heavyweight, the active and the exiled. The WBC decided that Frazier would get a straight crack at their new heavyweight championship in a fight with old foe Buster Mathis in early 1968. Some American athletic commissions would recognise Frazier. Others never did and the Ring magazine and its respected and sought-after yearbook did not and does not recognise a single heavyweight title fight 
between Ali beating Foley in March 1967 and a fight in February 1970. The great heavyweight void was created. At the Olympic trials in 1964, Mathis had beaten Frazier to qualify for Tokyo, but had then broken his thumb and Frazier had replaced him and won the gold medal. Frazier wanted revenge, real revenge, not the satisfaction of getting the gold. Sadly, there was no mention of Sonny Liston in either the WBA's tournament or the WBC's more direct selection process. Liston was still fighting, had won five fights by stoppage, all in Scandinavia, since the farcical rematch with Ali in 1965. Former American heavyweight champ Sonny Liston goes into the ring against Philadelphia's Dave Bailey. It's a chance for Swedish fight fans to get a look at Liston's comeback style. It's a scheduled 10-rounder, but it's not going to go quite that long. Only two minutes and 22 seconds have elapsed. Bailey obviously didn't see the swift, short right that put him down. Bailey tries, but can't do it, and it's a first-round knockout. Liston's quick victory is booed, but Sonny dreams of a title shot. Nobody wanted to talk about Sonny in the USA. Same with Ali, really. Banned and exiled, the two enemies now side by side in exclusion. The year ended without a single man as the heavyweight champion of the world. Ali had remarried. A man called Don King killed a man in Cleveland by stomping him to death. King would become the biggest promoter of heavyweight fights in history when he was released from prison. And Mike Tyson celebrated his first birthday in Brooklyn. Ali was long gone from the ring by the end of the year. But he was making money from talking on the college circuit. However, the FBI and the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command continued to monitor him. His file was growing and his lectures increasingly controversial. Our leader, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, teaches us that many of our Negro leaders, so-called Negro leaders, are frightened to death and they're afraid to ask the slave master for anything other than a job. The future was not clear. George Whiting knew that, the old pro from Fleet Street. A traveller Ali sighed for many years. A man in a suit and a trilby, smashing out his Ali towels on a tiny typewriter before and after each fight. Yep, old George knew. Whatever happens, it's been nice knowing you, Cassius Muhammad Ali Clay. You promised us plenty and, in your garrulous way, you certainly produced. He did, and he was missed instantly. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. 